1: Ransomware hits an Iowa agricultural cooperative. U.S. Treasury Department announces steps against ransomware's economic support system. Did Caseya get its R-Evil decryptor from the FBI? Ben Yellen describes a major federal court victory for security researchers. Our guest is Dave Stapleton from CyberGRX on the rise of extortionware. And Europol, along with Spanish and Italian police, take down the Camorra crime ring. from the Cyberwire Studios at Data Tribe. I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Tuesday, September 21st, 2021. The Black Matter ransomware gang, which claims to be the successor to the nominally maybe but possibly not retired groups, Are Evil and Dark Side, has hit the Iowa-based U.S. farm services provider New Cooperative, Reuters and others report. New Cooperative, which operates grain elevators, trades crops, and provides other support to farmers, says it's taken its systems offline as a precaution and that it's working with law enforcement. The company told Bleeping Computer, quote, New Cooperative recently identified a cybersecurity incident that is impacting some of our company's devices and systems. Out of an abundance of caution, we have proactively taken our systems offline to contain the threat, and we can confirm it has been successfully contained. Quote. They added, We also quickly notified law enforcement and are working closely with data security experts to investigate and remediate the situation. Black Matter has demanded $5.9 million in ransom, Bleeping Computer says, a figure that will rise to $11.8 million if the gang isn't paid within five days. The timing is unfortunate, coming as it does at the beginning of the U.S. grain belt's harvest season. Some of the back-and-forth between criminal and victims suggests the ways in which Black Matter understands its ethical exclusion of certain targets— on more or less do-no-harm grounds. Don't you understand, New asks, that we're supplying people with food? Haven't you said you won't attack critical infrastructure? Hey, forget about it, Black Matter replies. You're just making money. As they put it in their reply to the New Cooperative, quote, You do not fall under the rules. Everyone will only incur losses. Everything is tied to the commerce. The critical ones mean the vital needs of a person, and you earn money. End quote. So let's gloss that. The meaning will be apparent to anyone who's ever had to endure a dorm bull session with these stoners in the den down the hall, where it's conventional stoner wisdom that, yeah, it's wrong to steal from people, but it's okay to rip off institutions, because that's different, because they, like, make money and stuff. This gloss may give black matter more credit for principled altruism than they deserve, but here's one more interesting sidelight. Black Matter is probably usefully regarded as a Russian privateer. And as a piece in Bloomberg points out, the attack on the new cooperative may in part be intended to see exactly where the U.S. is prepared to draw its new, harder line on ransomware. As the crooks explain on their dark web page, the new cooperative is just too small to count. Quote, the volumes of their production do not correspond to the volume to call them critical. End quote. It's left alone companies that are really critical, like companies associated with oil, minerals, and many others much more serious. Black Matter told Bloomberg, We don't see any critical areas of activity. Also, this company only works in one state. So in essence, food's not really critical, and anyway, New Cooperative is below the size threshold of criticality. It was once said, proverbially, that Ukraine was the breadbasket of Russia, but during the decades of Soviet power, agricultural production fell off dramatically, and it hasn't fully recovered. Sometime in the late 20th century, the breadbasket of Russia became, well, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa. Did we mention Iowa? It will be interesting to see where any food shortages, should they develop, bite hardest and whether that affects the letters of mark and reprisal evidently on offer from the kremlin there have been some us moves against the infrastructure that supports the ransomware underworld the us treasury department this morning announced that it was taking steps to disrupt the financial structures that sustain the ransomware criminal economy cryptocurrency exchanges engaged in money laundering and processing ransom payments are being singled out for special attention The first of those to come under sanction is SUEX. As Treasury notes, most cryptocurrency exchanges and transactions are licit. They're going after the ones engaged in specifically criminal conduct. The Treasury announcement also details a lot of collaborative enforcement actions it's taking in conjunction with interagency and international partners. How to handle the details of a ransomware incident aren't always clear, even from the perspective of the law enforcement organizations charged with investigation and enforcement. In the case of the attack evil made against Caseya in early July, the company was able to recover its files with a decryptor it obtained from an undisclosed source. The Washington Post this morning disclosed the source. It was the FBI. The Bureau gave Caseya a decryptor 19 days after the company was hit, The FBI and its partners were hoping to be able to use the decryptor in the course of a bigger, more permanent strike against our evil. But then, our evil went into occultation, and the FBI decided its best course of action was to help Kaseya unlock its files. Why the delay? There would be several reasons. The best one, the one that is probably most persuasive to Kaseya and the others who suffered losses from the incident, would be that a decryptor needs to be checked and tested to ensure that it works as advertised and that it won't do any harm on the side. Other reasons for the delay involve the inherent difficulty of working things out with the various partners that inevitably participate in this sort of investigation. Those are not only other U.S. law enforcement and intelligence agencies, but also private sector and international partners. That may seem like unnecessary dancing over equities, But if you're serious about a whole-of-nation approach, such coordination is probably just part of the cost of doing business. And, of course, there was the hope that the Bureau might be able to take down our evil once and for all. Maybe later, and good hunting to the G-men. Finally, European police have rounded up about a hundred mobsters, and these are traditional Al Capone-esque gangsters associated with the Neapolitan Camorra, For cybercrimes that include sim-swapping, business email compromise, and the like, most of the hoods were collared in Spain, others in Italy, the Register reports, as it also observes that the mob is now apparently just as much into remote work as the rest of us are. Europol's press release announced the raids put the tally of alleged mobsters taken into custody at 106. Congratulations to Europol and their Spanish and Italian partners for a righteous bust. A gangland note, a lot of the press coverage says those arrested were in the Mafia, which is probably close enough for journalistic work, or close enough if you were writing a screenplay for Warner Brothers in the 1930s. But as we noted above, the Hoods were associated with the Camorra, centered largely in Naples, and not the Sicilian Mafia of American imagination. For what it's worth, while La Cosa Nostra has been traditionally active in North America, so too has Camorra. Al Capone's Chicago outfit, for example, was connected with the Camorra. But that's probably inside baseball and, as they say up in New Jersey, forget about it. The low-grade, cheap-grifting quality of the crime might serve as a useful corrective to those who think of gangsters as romantic figures. Fishing and sim-swapping seem like the digital equivalents of Lefty Ruggiero, Al Pacino's character, and Donnie Brasco. Sitting in a dingy social club trying to beat a parking meter open to get the quarters it might hold. Open Sesame. Forget about it. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. Dave Stapleton is CISO at cyber risk management firm CyberGRX. He's had his eye on ransomware and the growing range of issues victims have to be concerned about. It's not necessarily just about encryption anymore. It can be exfiltration and public sharing of private data.
0: Initially, you know, ransomware was a pretty straightforward thing. It was a the first attack was executed using floppy disks, um, and you had to. You had to mail the ransom payments to a P.O. box. <laughs> I think it was like $180 <laughs> right. or something like that. And then, of course, over the years, uh, as people have you know, found different defenses or ways to prevent that from being a successful type of attack, that's evolved. So we've got you know really kind of interesting things going on where they, they talk about the two-stage attack now. It used to be the, the primary vector for ransomware was encrypt all this data, you know, thereby rendering systems useless and that kind of thing, and then demand a ransom to get a decryption key to unlock everything. Well, people started to get wise to that, and they're making you know offline backups, practicing restoring from backup, that kind of thing. And so they kind of just say, eh, never mind, we're not going to pay the ransom, we're just going to restore our systems ourselves and move on. So, you know, adversary got hip to that and said, well, what can I do to really force their hand? And so what we're seeing more of now in this kind of a two-stage attack is, before encrypting that data, the threat actor is actually exfiltrating a copy of sensitive data. Um, and so then they're hitting you with one, okay, I've encrypted your your systems um, and probably had a major impact on operations, at least temporarily. So that's kind of bad. But let's just say you were prepared for that and you can restore. I'm going to hit you with another threat. And that would be to you know either release that data that I stole from you. That could be you know intellectual property, something like that, that could have an impact on your sort of competitive advantage um, or offer to sell it on dark web. Or even in some cases, I'm just going to name and shame. I'm just going to let people know that I was able to successfully hack your environment, and that reputational risk um, will take a hit. So yeah, a lot of evolution um, over the years in these types of attacks.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to me because I think along with the the ransomware itself, the the by exfiltrating data, you are being noisier as an adversary, right? You're doing something else. And it's, it's another thing for folks to detect. And so it's interesting to me that the degree to which that strategy still pays off despite the increased noisiness of it.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons that we're starting to see these, these criminal organizations. It's interesting to think of them conceptually like any business, um, you know they have a certain set of objectives that would you know, render success for their mission, if you will. Um, it's an illicit mission, um, no doubt. Um, but they operate not too dissimilarly from a lot of businesses that, uh, that we work in. And one of the things that they've started to do is specialize. And so, you know, ransomware as a service is something that's really gained a lot of popularity lately. And I think it's because of that kind of thing. Some of these attack types are getting more complicated, and you have to have better skills or techniques.
1: What's your sense on, on where things are, are headed with this? I mean, this cat and mouse game, do, any, any ideas what the next steps are, may likely be?
0: <laughs> I think more of attacks that are really just based on, on threatening behavior. I mean, we, we already see this. You'll get you know, a message that says, hey, we're, a, we're going to launch a distributed denial of service attack against your organization unless you pay us X they don't actually have to have any capability to, to execute that attack in order to make that threat so as we're starting to see a trickle of these things coming in you know hey i got this data of yours i'm going to release it unless you pay me maybe they do maybe they don't maybe some organizations um, particularly you know small and medium sized businesses whose security maturity might not be all the way up to snuff may not be able to confirm that and so then you face a very complicated decision of do i take this threat seriously and then act on it by you know, potentially paying the ransom. So, my guess is that we'll start to see more of those types of things that really, truly require almost zero cost uh, in order to to execute and zero skill. You know, kind of see that combined with real APT-driven, highly sophisticated, highly targeted attacks, particularly against critical infrastructure, because that threat is so critical. <laughs> I guess mm-hmm. is the right word for it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very hard. For example. If you know a, a hospital system is is you know, taken offline, you know you've got people who are literally on operating tables. Right. It's it's very tempting to say, well, shoot, we've just got to do what we got to do to get this back as quickly as we can. Let's just pay this ransom. So I think yeah. attacks against you know CI um, and more of these just you know reputational type uh, you know low skill, low cost uh, threats will will probably be on the rise.
1: That's Dave Stapleton from CyberGRX. visit vanta.com/cyber to take a self-serve tour that's vanta.com/cyber I'm pleased to be joined once again by Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. But more important than that, he is my co-host on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. More important than anything, I, I should say. You can call me husband, father. Right. Nothing is as
2: much of an honor as your co-host.
1: So, what you're saying is your wife does not listen to this podcast.
2: Uh, yeah. I think we can. I think we can say that relatively safely. Okay, yes, safe enough. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I wanted to touch base with you. Uh, this uh, article uh, from CPO Magazine. They're covering a, a story here. It's titled "In a Major Victory for Security Researchers." Federal court rules that virtual iOS devices are not a copyright violation. This is written by Scott Aikida. Uh, This is a pretty interesting development here, Ben. What's going on?
2: This is a very interesting development. So these two individuals, Amanda Gordon and Chris Wade, founded a company in 2017 called Corellium. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is a product that emulates iPhones uh, so that you can view them on desktop computers. Right. And it's supposed to be a tool for security researchers who are hunting for vulnerabilities. Right. They are not trying to replicate iOS software you know, and sell it on the open market for people to, to use it the way one would use an iOS device. Okay. That's not what they're doing. They created this as a research tool. So Apple, uh, as a company with their stature, uh, is wont to do, first tried to buy them off. Always a good strategy. Uh, They were not able to do that. Let's
1: throw money at the problem. (laughs) Yeah, that usually works
2: for them. I mean, they they are very good at buying off their competitors. Well, when you have
1: all the money, you you have that privilege, right? Yeah,
2: exactly. (laughs) I I would do that if I were in their position. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Here's a billion dollars. Please go away. Right. But uh, they were not able to successfully purchase them. So they filed lawsuit in federal court alleging a copyright violation. So there's this doctrine in the legal world called fair use. It's not a copyright violation if the alleged copier is using uh, the thing they've copied for a good reason, what we call fair use. Mm -hmm. So the court in this case determined is that replicating this software to do research on security vulnerabilities is fair use. Just the way that Reading an online article on something and commenting on it during a lecture for an academic course is also fair use. Because it's furthering the ends of of academic research and not furthering the ends of trying to make a profit off of the product. There's a public benefit there. Exactly. Um, You see fair use in a bunch of other different contexts, things like parodies. Generally, Mm -hmm. that would be a copyright Mm -hmm. violation, but – Weird Al, you know, he's adding things to the marketplace of ideas, if you will. Right. Um, So that generally qualifies as fair use. There's a separate allegation as part of this lawsuit that Corellium, this company, is violating the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Hmm. Um, That's going to be examined separately. But in terms of a common law copyright violation, we now have a precedent that if you emulate a product to use for security research— um, that's going to be fair use that will not subject you to a copyright claim, And the result of that should be we'll see many more products like this where individuals who are interested in research, interested in security, emulate products for the purpose of finding vulnerabilities, which I think is going to have a a very robust public benefit. So I think this is a perfect use of the fair use doctrine these individuals are not trying to make a buck out of the iOS server on its own terms. Mm-hmm. They're trying to do academic research on security vulnerabilities. Hmm. Um, and that's exactly what the fair use doctrine is all about.
1: Yeah, it's interesting too. I mean, the, the, uh, this article points out that uh, the judge in the ruling made note that it's really a limited number of people who can even make use of Corellium software. This right. isn't a broadly uh, applicable thing. Right, and that's a relatively limited
2: universe of people. Mm -hmm. Um, This is not something that's going to be widely used. It's people who are interested in the security vulnerabilities of Apple. And as you and I know, most people are not interested in the security and uh, vulnerabilities of their iOS devices. They just want to get to, you know the next cool application, right. and, and talk to their friends. right? I'll also say, though, you know, this is a pretty prominent organization in the cybersecurity world. Corellium won an award from Forbes magazine uh, for the cybersecurity product for the year 2020, hmm. saying it was crucially important to app developers uh, to let them know that their products work properly on uh, iOS devices. And it's backed by some major venture capital investors, um, you know, some, some big banks, so this isn't just, you know, a nobody that's that's uh able to win this lawsuit. It's mm-hmm. a relatively prominent company in this field. Um, and I think it sets a, a really interesting precedent. I think we're gonna see more security-minded startups come into the market and say, let's recreate this operating system, not to present it as an alternative to actually buying an Apple device, but to Foster research into security vulnerabilities.
1: Right, right. So, if you're a security researcher interested in iOS, for example, this is good news, and 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 sort of uh, clears the path for more tools like this. Yeah,
2: not just iOS. I mean, if you're a security researcher interested in, in any product from one of the big tech companies, I think this case is going to be a very valuable precedent for your endeavor.
1: All right. Well, again, the article is over on CPO Magazine, uh, written by Scott Ikeda. Uh, ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Pelsman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.